Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one concrete page of Talmud each day. And on today's pages, Kiddushin 42, 43, and 44. Hey, you know, it's been a while. We've been off Yom Kippur. We encounter a fascinating question. Can a person one appoints as an agent be a witness? In other words, if you pay someone, say, hey, look, you would be my agent. You would act in my stead. Could that person be an independent witness? Have a listen. Rather, the dispute is as follows. Rav says an agent can become a witness since we strengthen his words of testimony because he attests to a matter of which he is certain as he is the one that performed the action. He was right there. He saw it. He is credible. In the school of Rabbi Shela, they say, an agent cannot become a witness since the master said that the legal status of a person's agent is like that of himself. The agent is considered like the one who appointed him himself, just as one cannot testify with regard to a matter that concerns himself. The same applies to one's agent a discussion that opens up so many deep philosophical discussions of what really does it mean to bear witness? What really does it mean to be there, to see a thing with your own eyes? Does it matter that you had some ulterior motives? Does it matter that you had very strong ideas or inclinations to one side or the other if you were right there to see the thing? And friends, it makes me very happy that the Talmud brings up this particular question on this particular day because we had just finished commemorating Yom Kippur. And not only that, but also the 50-year anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, a seminal moment in Israel's history in which the country was really almost for the first time since its independence on the verge of extinction. And so to honor this notion of what it means to bear witness, it gives me great pleasure to invite over to the show to read his recollection, a young man who traveled to Israel as a student just as the war was starting. His name is Michael Millinson, and here he is sharing with us his recollection of witnessing the war firsthand. Have a listen. It's two o'clock in the afternoon of Yom Kippur, and I'm half asleep in a Hebrew University dorm room in Jerusalem when the piercing sound of an air raid siren startles me fully awake. Unclear what it means, I move the chair holding my pants closer, then settle back into bed. It's October 6th, 1973. I've been in Israel less than two months, most of that time in a language lab, Ulpan, trying to upgrade my Hebrew school level Hebrew skills as part of a junior year abroad program. I have no clue that a siren sounding on this particular day is the equivalent of a shofar blast proclaiming a national emergency. The siren wails again a few minutes later, followed by the noise of radios playing loudly down the hall. More minutes pass, then the siren sounds in all clear. At 4 p.m., when I get up and wander to an open door to ask if anyone knows anything about the sirens, the students clustered around a radio stare at me. Egypt and Syria have launched massive tank attacks in Sinai and the Golan Heights. Doctors are being called up, and hospitals are being evacuated to prepare for the wounded. 
the radio emits a regular beep beeping noise, followed by coded signals to reservists to report to their units. The radio reception is spotty, Arab music from a Jordanian channel incongruously interrupts. That afternoon, Israel had abruptly and utterly unexpectedly been thrust into an all-out war, bringing the nation to the brink of destruction while eventually extracting a toll of nearly 3,000 dead and more than 7,000 wounded in a country of just over 3 million people. It was a war that changed Israel to the core, as a veteran diplomat put it, triggering a societal earthquake whose social, political, economic, and psychological effects, in the words of an Israeli political scientist, still reverberate powerfully a half century later. And so I recently went back to the daily diary that I kept for the first and only time, starting in the summer of 1973, when I left my parents' home in the Maryland suburbs of Washington, D.C. I wanted to see whether my experiences in Israel might not only help illuminate the wrenching trauma of that period, but perhaps also cast a new light on the very different internal trauma Israel is grappling with today. What stood out from that diary was, yes, war, terror, religious messianism, and ethnic tension, but also, more prominently than anything else, an extraordinary social solidarity that, in retrospect, was being strained to its limits and beyond. Part one, the war, Saturday night, October 6, 1973. Signs are up in the dorm telling us where to find shelters, not a word taught in Hebrew school. A blackout is in effect for the entire country. I go to a group gathered near the office, get a candle and matches from Madricha, resident advisor, Ruti. She informs me that we're evacuating this dorm and moving up the hill to other dorms which have shelters and to take food, a blanket, a flashlight, and a candle. Aaron Singer, the head of the one-year program, comes around to assure us that people will be here to guide us in case of emergency. And if the American embassy says anything, we'll be notified. We listen to the English news at 8.45 p.m. The Egyptians have beachheads on the east part of the Suez Canal, but they've been contained, Israel Broadcasting tells us. Singer translates Prime Minister Golda Meir's speech to the nation for us. There is no doubt of our victory, she declares in that distinctive accent. At 11 p.m., the Voice of America plays a CBS News report from Tel Aviv to the background noise of wailing air raid sirens. We students can imagine what our parents must be thinking. At midnight, Israel radio says that 2,000 Syrian tanks have attacked the Golan, but that the situation is contained there and in Sinai. Sunday, October 7th. Students are urged to buy food tomorrow, but not too much, says the notice posted in the dorms. Jerusalem housewives certainly heeded the first part of that advice. By the time I got to the Supersol at 9.30 a.m., the battle had already been waging for two hours. All six lines were filled with people backed into the aisles, 
Many had shopping carts totally filled, despite periodic announcements that there was plenty of food to buy for today only. One man indignantly defended his three loaves of bread to the checker, who told him to put some back. I left. By 11.30, when I returned, there was plenty of milk and new vegetables had replaced the battle-weary ones of earlier. The supersol was open until 4 p.m. by government order. Everywhere, people gather around the radio, straining to hear. It's very frustrating during wartime to be able to understand only the general outlines of the broadcast. Went to Olpan this afternoon at 3.30. Our teacher, Shulamit, is an officer in the instruction corps, so she wasn't called up. We learned a slew of new words, such as frontier, blackout, armored unit, absorption of attack, which are proving immediately useful. Soon Israel will counterattack in force, Shulamit explains. At night, two middle-aged men with Haga, the Civil Defense Command, were standing in the street in front of the dorms and calling up to those who had unshaded lights shining from their rooms. Cars have appeared with their headlights painted over in blue. Let me pause here for a moment. It is hard to exaggerate just how shocking the Yom Kippur attacks were to an Israeli public smugly certain that the crushing Arab defeats of the Six-Day War of 1967 would deter its hostile neighbors for the foreseeable future. Still, when the war did break out, Israelis immediately understood what it meant. As an American student, however, it was completely different. A blackout, air raid sirens, home front wardens patrolling the street, long lines to donate blood. There was a disorienting feeling of having been suddenly dropped into an old World War II movie. Monday, October 8th. Most of our class was in Ulpan this morning, but Shulamit was not. Eventually, we left. An armored personnel carrier rumbled up a downtown Jerusalem street, not carrying troops, but ready. Windows on stores are taped by order of Haga. The 8.30 p.m. news in English reported that General David Elazar, the Israeli chief of staff, was confident that the Syrian attack has been stopped and tomorrow Israeli troops will start their drives. Are they on their way to Damascus, a reporter asks. Elazar replies that events will soon be obvious. Let me pause again. For the Israeli government, dealing with frenzied buying of bread and milk in supermarkets was one thing, sparking a national panic by honestly admitting just how close Syrian tanks were to northern Israeli towns was quite another. Israel's government lied enabled by military censorship that, then and now, controlled what journalists could report. Meanwhile, though I was neither soldier nor journalist, a letter I sent back to my college girlfriend at Washington University in St. Louis arrived sealed with red tape bearing the number 1001 next to a Hebrew inscription printed three times, opened by the censor. Wednesday, October 10th. Some guys my age, me and three drivers from Haga, loaded salt from the big bakery in Jerusalem onto small trucks and took it to a Beit Shemesh bakery and unloaded it there. 
The salt was in a large pile with 10 packs of one kilogram small plastic bags in each paper sack. The sacks kept splitting open, of course. We formed a human chain at first, then switched to small teams loading onto carts, then unloading onto trucks, and vice versa at Beit Shemesh, a town about 36 kilometers away. The Haga man I was driving with, a road contractor, invited me to his house after the war when he heard I had no family here. On the winding road to Beit Shemesh, we strained the low gears of the truck because the brakes weren't very good. At Beit Shemesh, the brakes finally went kaput. Luckily, we got a mechanic to fix them before returning. Very risky. In the evening, I was depressed. Sukkot, no family to be with, no sukkah in Israel of all places. Anyway, a couple of girls from the dorms managed to put up a makeshift sukkah out back between the two garden walls. I joined them, as did several other students. Rafi, an older man who's head of the dorms, came down with his four small children, a table, chairs, candles, some wine, two challahs, and salt. He said a blessing over the wine and bread with a Sephardic tune and the blessing for sitting in the sukkah. Then Rafi and his children left, and I ate with the girls. They had blintzes and a vegetable stew. So I brought down cheese, cucumbers, and tomatoes I'd bought earlier in the day from the Machane Yehuda market. I cheered up. Saturday, October 13th. At 1.30 p.m., the air raid siren sounds. This time, I didn't hesitate. I took the radio, a book, my passport and wallet, and headed for the shelter. It was locked, but in about 45 seconds, Rafi was there with the key. There were maybe 11 of us. The dorms are pretty deserted. We hear or feel a thud. Someone says, bomb. We say, sonic boom. Not close. Then we all stand outside and look. Nothing. Five minutes later, the all clear. Let me pause again. Looking back, I don't think I'd heard the term Eretz Yisrael Hayafa, the beautiful Israel, which expresses the social solidarity of Israel. But the Haga man's reflexive, you're part of the family, response to me was something I experienced over and over again. It was as ingrained in Israeli value as arguing and implicitly represented a boundary on those arguments. Speaking of values, there was also the Israeli disdain for advanced planning. For instance, fixing a van's brakes before they started to fail or keeping the shelter unlocked. Meanwhile, the noise we heard was a sonic boom, but the reason for the air raid siren was real. Israeli jets had intercepted Syrian ones. Sunday, October 14th. Today, the army began to notify families of deaths. Understandably, most of those dead from the first days of the war are my age, 18, 19, 20. The country is grim, friends afraid to phone friends. And the big push in Sinai with the reservists has not yet started. One of the workers in the corner butcher shop was among the dead. Who knows who else? Let me skip forward. Thursday, 
November 8th, went over to Dove and Chana, friends of my father, for dinner. Yesterday, today, and Sunday, not Shabbat, are days of national mourning. The news showed weeping parents and girlfriends at three regional temporary cemeteries. Dove's voice trembled as he explained that the Israeli dead in one month would be like 200,000 dead in the United States, needlessly, senselessly. What would be the reaction? As Hannah said, can you imagine what it is for Edor, one of their sons, a boy of 21, to lose tens of his friends dead? Let me pause again here. The enormous human cost of Israeli political and military leaders ignoring numerous intelligence warnings of a pending major attack shattered public trust. The newspapers began referring to hamechdal, a word roughly translated as enormous blunder. A morbid joke I still remember went this way. Question, if the Syrians had reached Tel Aviv, who would have stopped them? Answer, the Egyptians. Part two, terror. Tuesday, December 4th. I shop for some vegetables in the old city shuk, then start to walk back up to the Jaffa Gate when I see blood trickling down the cobblestones. At first, I think someone slaughtered an animal, but then I see a lot of border police with their Uzis and automatic rifles. TV cameras and reporters are there too. There are narrow pools of blood and what looks like a small bloody handprint. A grenade exploded, someone tells me, about a half hour ago. The radio says that 21 were injured, four moderately, one seriously. A one-year-old child and five women soldiers are among the injured. One guy from our floor was there from almost the time of the explosion. He works nearby. What if I had been walking here a little bit earlier? Skipping forward again. Wednesday, May 15th. 1974. Yesterday's lead editorial in Maori was entitled Warning Terrorists. Today, the terrorists in commemoration of 26 years of the State of Israel struck. Three Katusha rockets were discovered by sheer chance on UN Hill only an hour before they were scheduled to go off. Two were aimed at the King David Hotel, one at the Kotel, the Western Wall. But the main event is at the religious high school at Malot, a northern settlement. There, 101 high school kids and adult guides are staying overnight on a tiul. Three terrorists, after killing a man, his wife, and four-year-old child who live on the block, take over the school early in the morning. Some 10 or so children and adults escape. At 5.45 p.m., the terrorists who refuse to negotiate start shooting at the army and the children. The army attacks, the three terrorists are killed. As of this evening's count, so are 16 to 17 children, a day of horror. Thursday, May 16th, five more children are known dead in the Ma'alot massacre. When the army attacked, the terrorists sprayed the children lying on the floor with machine gun fire and grenades. Let me take another pause. While the outbreak of war 
revealed a terrible complacency about the danger of attacks coming from outside Israel's borders, the subsequent failure to protect the public from terror attacks within Israel's borders stoked public anger against the military and political establishment to even greater levels. Armed civilian patrols sprang up throughout the country. Part three, religious messianism. A young Haredi man would come regularly to the dorms inviting American students to spend a Shabbat with a religious family, some of us eventually accepted. Friday and Saturday, December 14th and 15th, 1973. The Dati religious community does not any longer just think the Messiah is coming. After the war, they are sure. It's so obvious, one man chided me condescendingly. He's coming now. Now could mean today, tomorrow, next month, at the very outside a year. What are the yeshiva bukhars doing to prepare? Well, when the Mashiach comes, it'll be too late to do teshuvah, repentance. That's why the boys first talked quietly. They told me they'd wanted to spare my feelings since I wasn't going to be one of those going to heaven. The husband and the family I stayed with, a Sephardic rabbi, kept asking me rhetorical questions designed to raise doubts about whether I really understood what it meant to be Jewish. After Friday night dinner, it was downstairs to meet an Ashkenazic rabbi. Again, the assumption was that I knew nothing. During Shabbat afternoon, the rabbi I was staying with told me about great men from the community who could perform miracles, like the one who'd killed someone by just a word. The rabbi was surprisingly violently anti-Zionist, saying we we're better off before the establishment of the state and that only Torah study kept the state alive anyway. He also talked a lot about Jewish superiority, about how we were civilized back when the non-Jews were painting their faces blue. Let me pause again. This was the single most repellent Jewish experience of my entire life. It is hard to believe that over the years, these same individuals who I'm not naming and their successors expanded their influence globally and have even become part of Israel's ruling coalition. It is a chilling realization. Part four, ethnic tension. Saturday, December 29th, 1973. I went down the hall to see Tzion, an Israeli friend, and discussed the upcoming election to the Knesset. In honor of his birthday, he made me some Moroccan tea with lots of sugar. He was complaining about discrimination by both major parties against Sephardim, pointing out how few were in the Ma'arach, the labor coalition list. He supported the aims of the Israeli Black Panther Party demonstrators a few years back when, after serving in the army, Sephardic men couldn't even get jobs or apartments. But he says he'll probably vote for a Sephardic religious party. Another pause. My diary entries reflect repeated examples of the frustrations and tensions within Israeli society that, unaddressed, have borne such bitter fruit today. In December 1973, as military disengagement talks between Israel and the Egyptians dragged on, a Hebrew newspaper columnist puckishly, and perhaps prophetically, suggested keeping the talks going forever 
in order to preserve domestic tranquility. Part five, looking forward. Ron Lesham, co-creator of a powerful 2020 miniseries about the Yom Kippur War, in English, Valley of Tears, called the war a moment where the first Israel disappeared and died and a second Israel was born for good and bad. That same assessment could apply to the turmoil transfixing Israel today. The bad is obvious. A prime minister recklessly labels as traitors, even those in the same kind of elite commando unit where he himself served, if they oppose his effort to essentially cripple judicial oversight. All the while, he clings to power in a coalition of religious and nationalist extremists. As I struggled to write this account of the events of 1973 and 74, my daughter commented, you're processing heartbreak. True. And yet, I think of the recent video by Israeli rapper Koran Dahan, I Don't Hate, featuring a secular young Ashkenazi leftist and a religious Sephardi right-wing counterpart spitting out grievances in the Hebrew rhyme. Though their accusations are filled with anger, anguish, and scorn, the boundary and bond of family rejecting hate is nonetheless reinforced both with words and with the image of both men standing in silence at video's end as the Yom HaZikaron Memorial Day siren blares. Then they hug. There have been other small signs of self-reflection by some on both sides during the struggle over a law that threatens to become its own mechdal, a terrible blunder that precipitates a civil war. But as the commentator Daniel Gordas grimly cautions, the healing embrace in that rap video represents an aspiration, not reality. And yet, I remember a conversation with the Moroccan immigrant family that regularly hosted me for meals, despite their very modest circumstances. They were indignant that while their family kept Shabbat and had a clean home, some of their Ashkenazi neighbors still looked down on them. Nonetheless, the mother proudly insisted she wouldn't behave like Ashkenazi mothers who tell their children they shouldn't play with the Sephardic because after all, we're all Jews. We're all Jews. Will that social solidarity withstand the current ongoing and intensifying trauma in Israel? That is Hatikva, the hope.
This has been Take One. If you enjoy the show, and I hope that you do, then you're really going to love the book I wrote. It's called How the Talmud Can Change Your Life. Surprisingly modern advice from a very old book. And it's coming out in just a few short weeks. You could pre-order it now at your local bookstores directly from the publisher through the link in this here podcast description or through that big online store whose logo is a smile. Once you've pre-ordered the book, take a picture of your receipt, just a snap on your phone would do, and follow the instructions at tabletmlikemary.ag slash pre-order. That's tabletmlikemary.ag slash pre-order. Then you will be invited to an exclusive star-studded virtual book launch event and get all sorts of other pleasant surprises. As always, please go and rate and review. Take one on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You could get your Take One t-shirts and mugs at tabletstudios.com and you could subscribe to our weekly newsletter at tabletm.ag slash newsletter. Take One is a Tablet Studios production. The show is hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz, and is produced and edited by Daron Ruskay, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team also includes Stephanie Butnick, Josh Cross, Robert Scarmucci, Courtney Hazlett, and Tanya Singer. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash takeone or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. I hope we've made your day a little more Talmudic.